In my last two years as a teacher, I was working predominantly in a Muslim school. The vast, vast, vast majority of the students and most of the teachers were all practicing Muslims. And it was around this time that there was a another terrorist attack. I think it was the Boston bombing or something like that. And when it occurred, one of the one of the boys in my year eleven class came up to me in tears. And he said, Sir, did you see did you see what's happened? And I said, Yeah, like, do you want to talk about it? And he's like, This is just when it when the news just broke. And he said, Sir, I, I hope, I so hope that it wasn't a Muslim who committed the bombing. And we talked back and forwards and basically I was like, you know, what what do you mean? Like why you know, beyond the obvious, but like why 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 is this getting you so upset? What's 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 going on? And he said that every time that there's a terrorist attack, every time there's something in the news that pops up, every time an event like this occurs that is completely out of his control, his life becomes hell. He was saying that, you know, the last time this happened, he would be on public transport and people would be verbally and physically harassing him. And, you know, that you know, just basically saying that every time something something occurred that was blamed on a Muslim, he would suffer the consequences, despite it happening in another country, despite him not being involved, despite a whole variety of things. So he was terrified that that would happen again and again and again, because it had happened in the past. And that thought really got me, got me thinking. That really got me sort of aware of racism at a level that I wasn't quite aware of, because I'm, you know, I've got tan skin, but I'm a white dude. So I'm not, you know, I'm living in a predominantly white country and I'm, you know, just simply put, I'm not a victim of racism in almost any aspects of my life ever. I'm grateful for that fact, but it also leaves me with a massive blind spot. I'm not able to necessarily even intuit what it was like, or what it is like, for people to be victims of racism. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because, you know, at the time right now, there's mass protests that were sparked with a police killing of someone in their custody. And this has sparked people to write there and, you know, all over America and all over the world, citing stats and facts and all of this sort of stuff that, you know, Black Lives Matter. And everyone's throwing their opinions in. So, you know, I thought I should discuss this a little bit because what I'm, what I'm seeing is, is and of course this was hap- would, would happen, is, is a twisting of the narrative in the sense that I'm not going to proclaim... I have any personal vestige in, you know, I'm not being directly impacted here. But what I see is that people from different sides of this conflict are tweaking it and twisting it and sort of painting the other side 
as sort of a, a, a single entity or tweaking it and twisting it to push their own political narratives. So I wanted to see if I could potentially sort of riff on it a little bit and provide some some nuance or some discussion or some insight. Because, you know, clearly something's going on here. It's, you know, this is coming off the wave of coronavirus lockdowns and all of that sort of stuff. So people are already on edge. And, you know, the US has a history of racial conflict. It's very hard for, I think, for people to understand what what that would be like. So, so let, let's let's break it down. The first thing I want to suggest is that racism is real. I know that sounds silly, but it's very easy for people that don't experience racism to believe it just doesn't happen, or that it's not as bad as it seems, or that people should just get along. Like, there's there's a whole like a lot of just ignorance going on, but racism is real. And and sadly, I feel that it's almost like, like a primal or evolutionary thing. If we, if we trace our, like our lineage back to, to our tribes, right? We, we, you know, years, you know, millennia ago when we were, you know, first humans, we have a very small tribe and that was our sort of family. And anyone outside of that family is potentially a risk. If they spoke different, if they looked different, that was an identifier, and that identifier was made us wary. So it's almost like we're primed to be innately worried, upset, cautious of people that don't look like us, just from like a primal evolutionary perspective. And there's countless studies to show that when you show, for example, people a, like they, they're tracking micro expressions, they're tracking EEG um, measurements, they're tracking a whole bunch of stuff, and they'll flash up an image of someone that looks like the participant and someone that doesn't, and they'll mo- monitor the the response. They will they will track you know preferential treatment towards certain groups that are like the person or not like the person, and time and time and time again they've discovered that yeah people are racist to people that aren't that don't look like them. It's it's a thing that happens. Goes every way, you know, no matter what group you're in. And it, it goes beyond just skin color. It can go to, you know, sporting teams or to, you know, in some, some, I'll, I'll sort of break down a couple of like interesting experiments that they, once you just highlight differences, people start acting different. There was one study where they put kids and adults, they've done it multiple times in different colored t-shirts. That was the only, like, the only difference between these groups was like, hey, you're wearing red, you're wearing green, you're wearing yellow, whatever. And then they asked people to rank their opinions of the people that were their colours, and then the people that were not their colours, just wearing a different coloured shirt. And of course they chose, they just, just by the fact that they're wearing the same thing, that the people wearing the same thing were, you know, statistically better, quote unquote, than the people wearing different stuff. There's an experiment that it's not an experiment, I suppose it's sort of like a, like a little, yeah, I don't know, a little experiment um, by Jane Elliott, and this is the blue eyes, brown eyes experiment. And once again, it's been replicated. Basically, she split the class into different coloured eyes. Um, this is school kids in 1968, right? And they've replicated this a bunch of times too. But split the split the kids up into basically preferentially treating one group over another group based on eye colors, i.e. representing racism purely based on eye color. And this was to be done to sort of 
you know, preferential treatment to one eye colour, putting the other eye colour down, and then to look at what happened with the kids. How were they treating each other? And when they were putting down the brown-eyed people, the the kids started victimising them, abusing them, bullying them, and all of that sort of stuff. When the roles were reversed, the same thing happened. And it was basically highlighting that if you just highlight a difference, if you preferentially treat people with a difference, you are now, you are sort of causing children to just, yeah, jump on board and they will perpetuate that. It doesn't even have to have any physical difference. It can just be the fact that there's an other group. You're in this group, they're in that group. It's an other. We have this way of othering people. The classic experiment is the robber's cave experiment in 1954, I think. Basically, the idea was they split kids up into two groups and had them in conflict. Conflict for resources, conflict for attention, physical, uh, like, sporting competitions. And once again, they started victimizing, bullying, disliking each other. And then the, 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 the experimenters were like, how can we get these kids to come back together? And they basically gave them some superordinate goals, some goals where they had to work together, you know, pooling money or, you know, working together to overcome a physical challenge. And that helped them to sort of draw these disparate groups together. But the point is, is with othering is that it's very easy to look at yourself and your own group and sort of see all of the differences in the nuance, right? But when you look at another social group, all you see is the sort of the cliche, the, the stereotype, what they're presenting. You don't see the nuance, the individualism. And because of that, it's very easy to just to group them collectively as those people are this way. All of them are like this. But obviously they're not. And here's the thing. That group, that group that you've othered, they're looking at your group going, well, you're all the same. You can test this for yourself. Next time you see a group of kids that are all dressed the same, you know, a clique, they all look the same to you. And you've probably got this very quick flash response going, oh, they're, they're, they're all the same. They probably have all the same thoughts. You, 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 you're not necessarily looking at them all as individuals. You can understand that I'm treading a thin line here that might be taken incorrectly. And that's okay. I'm happy if I say something that sounds controversial or out of line or whatever, comment, message me, and I can, I can deconstruct exactly what I mean here. But the point is, is there's this, there's this innate way that we just other people. And the reason we do it is that it's it's quick. It's a survival mechanism. Once again, evolutionarily, you have to be able to make a very quick snap judgment of an incoming person. Is this person a threat? Are they safe? Could we trade with them? Could we mate with them? Or do I have to fight this person to survive? The, the, the humans that didn't have that default reflex die off, right? Because tribes would come in and wipe them out. You have to be able to recognize who's a threat and who's not. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that racism and all of this sort of stuff is inevitable because obviously we've come a long way and there's different processes that we can overlay over the top of our natural instincts to other people. And the reason for that, like the evidence for that is quite is quite apparent in some societies. Some, some places, some countries have it sorted out where the, the, the race and the gender and sexuality and all that sort of stuff are less significant impacts or less significant barriers to success. Don't get me wrong, there is always room to move. But the point I'm making is, is that racism is real. Othering people is real. And it would take a, a saint of a person to, to, to honestly be able to say, I've never had those thoughts, or I've never acted upon those thoughts. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hard mo it's a hard move here. 
So what I see happening with, you know, in in response to the death, in response to this this act of, of police brutality. And, and like, don't get me wrong, like I've looked at the footage and it's disgusting. And I've got multiple comments on that footage as well as ways to avoid it. But let's look at what's happened. People are protesting. And that's causing a lot of this us versus them. I've seen people comment on social people I know and also you know random people online saying all cops are this or all protesters are that or all this is that all cops are not bad all protesters are not out to just loot and steal stuff right there's a nuance here some cops clearly are bad that person right the person who (laughs) or the people that have done it Clearly something's going on there. And, and and once again, we turn to psychology, right? What percentage of the population are psychopaths? There is a percentage, right? Now, if you get a person that's a psychopath, that has struggles with emotion, that gets a kick out of bullying and abusing people, right? In a country that's as big as America, 330 million people. What's the chances that some of those psychopaths are going to become cops? probably pretty high, right? If they're not cops and they have this drive to hurt or to be in control or do that sort of stuff, what other what other sort of professions will these people get into? Some of them will become security guards, prison guards. Maybe some will become teachers. Maybe some, you know, you know what I mean? Like these people will be interspersed throughout society. Some will just become, you know, that, that asshole manager that we, that we don't like, right? What I'm getting at here is that there are certainly instances of individual police doing terribly brutal things. Two blacks, two whites, two people in general. That's a fact. Does that mean all cops are bad? I, I, I can't agree with you. Now, I'll get into the systemic racism and that sort of stuff soon so don't 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 get me wrong on that one but the point i'm trying to make is is not not all cops are bad and and if you find yourself believing that who have you and who will you call when you need it if someone breaks into your house if some catastrophe happens are you going to deal with it yourself you know there's calls for police to be disbanded like uh, i don't know about you but anarchy seems not so great (laughs) (laughs) like I'll get into the systemic stuff soon but like let's say we break let's say there's there's, you know if we take the extreme left-wing view of like let's break it down and have an anarchist state and it'll all sort of somehow work out into this anarchist utopia I just don't see that happening realistically because you know in in countries and in places where social order has broken down where the police has gone to gone to hell what happens Groups of people that have guns, that have power, get together and they instill their laws. They instill their beliefs. Now, if you happen to be on, you know, the new, um, <laughs> the new, the new okay ethnicity, the new um, power power play, you, you happen to be part of the correct religion that, that sort of takes up and takes charge, or you're in the in group that, that has, that the anarchists sort of um, state has fostered, great, you're now in like a better life better life quote-unquote but you've just replaced one system with another anarchy won't hold forever there's too many humans for it we need to organize and group up 
and that interim period will be bloody and violent and terrible, and the end result will likely be something far, far worse. Mass disruptive changes. The transition is never pretty. Look at history. Look at any sort of revolution. Any revolution. A fascist fascist re- 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 revolutions in, in countries, communist revolutions in countries, or like religious revolutions, they're all bloody, they're all violent, and it leaves people oppressed. Once again, I'm not saying that there isn't a systemic corruption or sorry, systemic racism here, but what I am saying is, is that there needs to be a nuanced approach rather than tearing it all down. Okay, there just needs to be. Because tearing it all down will lead to, will lead to worse. For everyone, by the way. If we look at this idea of systemic racism, we need to go back to our, our sort of more recent past. Slavery was a thing, right? It, it simply put, was. And one race, one colour of people in the more recent history enslaved predominantly people of another race and another colour. Okay? That's, that much is obvious. The thing is, is that that happened in very recent history. You know, there's there's literal pictures of, you know, <laughs> it's 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 it it happened so recently that to think that the impact of that could just be somehow gone is laughable. In America, slaves, you know, the 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 Civil War, quote unquote, stopped slavery. Right? It you know at least at least eliminated it, but you're still left with a massive racist state with, you know, segregation issues and civil rights issues and a whole variety of things that have, have needed a lot of push to get these changes to come through to, to bring us to where we are, which is still not ideal, which is still not equality. But why is this the case? Why is it that certain groups of people are, by percentage, more incarcerated than another group? Well, let's look at it. First of all, let's look at it from the internal inner perspective. Let's look at it from the individual perspective. There are, with like sort of families and communities, there's cycles of abuse and cycles of poverty and cycles of trauma that are inherent, that it's very hard to break out of. If you've had a parent that is poor, that had poor spending habits, You've not learnt how to spend your money well. If you've got parents that are addicted to something, you've not learnt how to... You've you've seen that and you you will innately learn how to... That will be your sort of coping strategy. If your parents have split up, you've got a more chance of having having a, a, a broken household relationship, right? If you were beaten as a child, you're more likely to beat your child. These things travel down, down generations because that's just what we've learned. If you, you know, I'm speaking from experience of a traumatic childhood. My default is, you know, my learning, what my parents showed me is, that's sort of like my, 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 my first response to situations is what I learned. And I have to constantly fight that to overcome it. Now, that that whole situation, if we, we trace it back to literal slavery, right, and then years and years and years of segregation, of 
of abuse, of corruption, of, you know, glass ceilings, of this whole thing, of, of higher levels of incarceration, all of that sort of stuff. That's going to perpetuate down generations. So, so, so if there's this sort of, this sort of belief on the, on the side that sort of like condemning these, these, these uh, protests being like, well, why don't you just get a job? Why don't you just work? Or why don't you do what I've done? The thing is, is that you're doing that because you've got it from a position of, of privilege, of, of past learning, of, you know, of, of generations of examples of it working. If, if you're a child of color growing up in a ghetto and, you know, your, your father's left the house and all your friend's fathers have left the house or they've been incarcerated or there's, you know, constant crime going on and, you know, it's, it's just, there's, there's less access to, to social support and the schoolings, the school system is bad because those schools in those areas can't attract the quality of teachers that your schools can because it's a worse area. And do you see how this perpetuates itself, right? There's, there's less, there's, you know, more work needs to be done to, um, but, but, you know, if let's say, let's say that, let's just say that there's equal government spending and one, one area has more crime and more you know, vandalism, that money that's going to clean up that, that crime to, to stop the vandalism, to, to sort of, you know, make the, the community safer, there's less money to go to community development, right? So the interesting thing, like I, I've lived in a couple of different areas where I live and I've seen this firsthand in the sense that in one area, the, the area I live in now is quite nice and the, 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 the council spending chooses to spend their money on, you know, community programs and and sort of just making things just... That if you've got an interest, there's a, there's something that you can do in the community about it. There's things being set up, there's grants, there's all of this sort of stuff happening. Where I used to live was quite a rough area, very low socioeconomic, a lot, a lot, a lot of crime. And there just wasn't much money for community development because all of the money was going to, you know, repairing stuff. Do you see how that perpetuates itself? Do you see how that is, is sort of continues this process? <laughs> So it's like there's this there's this there's this perpetuation this inertia that is very very hard to break but if you're looking at it from the outside perspective and you've you've not grown up in those experiences if you haven't been the the victim of years of overt or subversive racism you'd just be like oh just just do this thing just like it's easy because for you it is but but imagine if you've grown up and you've seen yourself and your friends being disproportionately pulled over by police on the accusation of being black, or you've had job opportunities passed over, or you've, you've looked, you know, the only reason you got your job was based on affirmative action, not because you're good, not because you're yourself, but because it was mandated that we have to have this percentage of this ethnicity. All right, you're starting to see how you could start getting some anger here, and then you're pushed, and you're pushed because of, you know, global socioeconomic stuff. The coronavirus happens, and there's a shutdown. So now, not only are you already struggling, you've already been seeing years of abuse, you've already had this systemic issue, and now your government's telling me you can't work, stay home. 
and the, the government support that you're getting is not adequate. How are you feeling now? You can barely afford to support yourself. And then you look on social and you see someone that looks like you being held down by someone that doesn't look like you until they die. You're going to be pretty friggin' angry, right? You're going to want some sort of vengeance here. You're going to want some sort of change. That to me makes sense. Because, look, to get this many people out protesting this passionately for this long, people, you know, obviously there's a problem, right? Obviously they're not happy. Obviously, you know, they're, they're, they're not in a place that they're comfortable with. This, this makes, you know, like they're just not. I was, I was, I had this discussion with my, my partner who, she was born in Russia, right? They, they fled just before, or just after the fall of communism, right? When, when there was this sort of, you know, back, backwards revolution, um, and we've had the conversation of like, well, what would it take for you to protest? What would it take for me to get out on the streets and literally protest something? I thankfully, it would require a lot for me to, now I'm not saying I wouldn't protest in support of some, a cause like this or support for an environmental cause, right? But I look at my own situation and I go, well, I've got, I've got a really good life. Like now I've, I've pushed for that. I've fought for that. I've, you know, overcome past trauma and issues, but I was able to, and now I've got a job that I can thankfully still work through in the coronavirus. I'm, I'm doing pretty good for myself. I don't face racist issues. I'm a white guy that's, you know, 32. So I don't have gender issues. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable here. So what would it take for me to actually put my body on the line, right? To go from where I am now to being like, no, I'm literally like the best thing I can do with my time right now is to go out on the street with a sign and scream, right? I'm saying this to highlight the fact that the people that are doing this, if you can't relate to that, if you can't think to yourself, well, like, what would it take? Like, it would take a lot for that to happen to me. If that's you, yeah, like, just like it's me, like, like, I, I can't, I can't fathom the, the mental state and the, the, the years of built up anger and anguish and resentment that these people would be feeling because that's what it would need to take for me to get out on the street and protest for myself, for people like me to, to have it better. I'm, I, you know, so, so like, like I can, I can empathize with the, the, the passions that they're feeling because you know, like for what I've, what we've previously discussed here, we've, they're obviously struggling. Let, let's talk about specifically what these protesters are doing now. Because there's this whole push to going like, all cops are bad. But then it's like, well, the counter push is, well, you know, everyone protesting is Antifa, you know, anti-fascists. <laughs> and, and, and that's sort of become like a, like a, insult to to criticize anyone on the left by people on the right you know and like it goes both ways you know people on the left call people on the right nazis people on the left and it gets this crazy thing and the thing is is that it's once again not every protester is the same there will be people protesting that are literally using it as an excuse to loot right they will just be like hey this is a great excuse i wanted that new tv i'm gonna go rob this joint get away with it scot-free 
That that will and is happening. There are people that, for whatever reason, it could be, you know, psychological. You know, like we talked about the sociopathy, right? There'll be people protesting that also have mental health issues that are like, hey, I just want to destroy something. There'll be people that are doing it to disrupt. There's been multiple cases shown through protests in different countries and in America, and it's probably happening now, where they will get, as in the government, police, nefarious groups, whatever, will plant protesters and incite them protesters to violence so that the police can crack down upon them. That can and will happen. So so the narrative is being twisted and painted. This is, not only is this a protest, but it's also like a propaganda war. Because like, you know, there, there, was, there was an event um, protesting outside the White House and there's a famous church outside the White House and police came in and tear gassed and pushed and bullied and victimized people out of the way so Trump could have a photo shoot with a reverend standing on that church. Now, if your only media consumption is from the protesters' perspective, you're getting one story. If your media consumption is only from the the right-wing, you know, pro-Trump supporter perspective, you're getting a completely different story. Which story's right? Like, which narrative here is the true one? I would argue that it's very hard to get a true narrative. It's very hard to get a true understanding. What what is the goal, quote-unquote, of the protests? Right, like, as in, they're voicing their opinion, they're, they're, they're marching through the streets, they want change, right? But how, how will they bring about that change? What is the, is the purpose or the goal or the end state, the win condition of the protesters? I'm sure that if you interviewed them, there'll be a general consensus of like, we want change. We want something to happen. We don't want, you know, an over-incarceration of black people in jails. We don't want, you know, people to be literally killed <laughs> just getting arrested on suspicion of, you know, unproven suspicions, right? We don't want to be, you know, suspected of a crime based on skin color. There's all these sort of idealistic goals that make a lot of sense. But how will the protesting cause that to change? I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not here to come up with the answers to that. Like I, I don't know a solution here. I'm just sort of from a detached perspective. I'm in Australia, and I'm looking at this, going, "This isn't. This doesn't look good." I. I'm not sure how how you could get a consensus. You know, if I go back to the the if we think back to the Occupy Wall Street uh, movement, what was the goal? Like, you know, it was amazing. A lot of people protested, and you know, like down with the one percent, all all that junk. It didn't really, despite all of the anger and aggression, and you know, similar sentiments here. Nothing really changed because there wasn't really a cohesive leadership, and this is this is part of the problem with protests nowadays is that they flash off and they're this flash rage driven by social media because it can be and it can spread around the world but it's it's hard to sustain a movement like this because who's leading it what's the goals what's the outcome where are we going with this i saw this stat saying you know i think it was like blackout tuesday and there was something like 100 million you know people posting on social 
a black square and there was something like 22 million people signing a petition that could actually make some change. And it's like, hey, like you actually have to do something more than just, I support you guys, right? If you want to change. There, there can be social pressures and there can, you know, energy can be pushed towards it. But, but like, from my perspective, how can we, how can we initiate legitimate change? I would suggest a couple of things. I'm not a believer in, like I said, tearing down the system because tearing down the system and rebuilding it will be far, far worse. And just, just any study of history will, history will show you that. I think that you can make reforms and change, but it has to be a concerted effort over a long, long, long time because otherwise people will get pandered to and catered to, but it won't it won't cause the kind of changes that need to happen if you're on the protesting side here. Vote with your money. Vote with your votes. Vote with your, your, your support of business, of people in the real world, right? If, if you know that certain companies have policies that are very inclusive, that would be the kind of policies that you would want every company to have, buy from them and um, boycott the companies that don't and spread that information widely. If you know that there's certain politicians and people in power now or people vying for power that have the policies and want to make the changes that you want to see, support them. If you know that there's petitions and things that will be viewed upon that can make a difference wherever you are, this could be on a local, state or governmental level and depends on the country you're in, obviously, will depend on the mechanism, do those changes. Will will walking the streets screaming help? It might. It because it does show that there's a it does show that there is a massive, massive undercurrent and sort of push of people that are not happy. But let's 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 gear that energy towards actually making changes that will stick and that will count. So it it um, my, my my concern is this is that property is being destroyed that that things are getting you know like like you know people are getting you know clashing with police with with each other and they're getting hurt and there will be deaths and there will be you know property damage and all that sort of stuff but but, but is that other than the expression of anger will it do anything because if it won't do anything we're just we're just screaming we're just getting angry it'd be good if it did something i, I want to highlight the, the 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 just just re-highlight again that you know if you're a police person or like you know, national guard or some sort of some sort of worker here, every time you look at a protester, they're a person with thoughts, with emotions, with feelings, just like you. And on the other side of things, if you're a protester, the police, the 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 National Guard, whoever's out there, you know, are also just people. They've got families, right? We're all just people here. Both sides might represent something to the other that the that your side thinks of as toxic. If you're looking at the other group and thinking that they're toxic, that they're they're bad, that they're whatever 
it gets very easy to start victimizing, to 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 abusing your power, to to taking to doing things that you're like, oh, this isn't that great. There's this there's this push of like this counter push to you know Black Lives Matter. It's like yeah, but all lives matter, and and yeah, all lives do matter, right? But it's like, well, what lives are being impacted and victimized now? Right, because they're the, they're the people that need our support, right? If you if you're happy, if you're if you're not black, but you happen to be of a race or a gender or a sexuality that is being abused and victimized and pushed down and discriminated against, you need more help and support than a white male does. That's just a fact. I think the thing that also happens here with with white people or, you know, I say white people, but, you know, the more privileged is that they're looking at their situation and they're going, yeah, but my life isn't that great either. Like, I don't know. I look at the whole of America and I'm like, this looks very not so great. The, 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 the economic divide is stretching regardless of color. There's a massive, there's a massive collection of people that live on a pay-to-pay basis that have less than $400 in savings. And if you look at America, the healthcare system is just a mess. You know, like over here, I could break my arm and get it, get surgery on it for free, right? You know, as in like governmentally paid. And that happens in a lot of countries in America. That will cost me $15,000 that I simply don't have. And it's hard to get insurance. And, you know, the, 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 the education system's a bit of a mess over there. Like, like there's a lot of problems here. And there's a lot of poor people of, of all races and of all genders and all of this sort of stuff. And, that, and that, that to me suggests that everyone's struggling. So I think that what's happening potentially is, is that, you know, the poor white people are, going, are being told by the media, by the left wing, you're privileged, you're privileged, you've got this, you've got all of this access. And they're looking at their life and they're living, you know, pay to pay going, I don't really feel that privileged. And, you know, perhaps comparatively, Stats studies show that they are in a better place, but their place is also pretty shitty. A lot of the time, they're living pay to pay. They're they they're, they're struggling to survive. Right? They're losing jobs. They're just they're they're minimum. They're on minimum wage, and the minimum wage can't even give them health care. They're they're sort of choosing not to go to a doctor because they can't afford it. Right? <sighs> How can you expect someone in that situation to have much sympathy for the other when they're struggling and the people around them that look like them are equally struggling? There's an issue here to suggest that potentially the real problem isn't white versus black. It's a wealth inequality, a wealth distribution in the sense that the richest, you know, 0.1% have so much goddamn money that it's laughable compared to the poorest. Maybe there should be a, if you're looking for how we can reform this, let's look at reforming the tax situation. Let's look at reforming, um, you know, that, that whole upper crust corruption so that some of that money actually will trickle down. You know, trickle, trickle down economics is bullshit. It doesn't work. The rich just hoard it, right? If people are struggling to survive, they're going to be very unempathetic to other people that aren't their their kind struggling. They will they will will sort of will go will, will say back, well, yeah, they're struggling, but I'm also not privileged. At least I don't feel like that. 
But let's let's step back from this whole situation and look at it on a country perspective, because America and other countries that are sort of like protesting about, like Australia, there's a bit of a protest about how we treat our our native our native uh, population, and that's happening, you know, in England and around the world, right? But if we compare the relative wealth of those sort of countries to the the quote unquote third world countries. Everyone in our countries have got it far, far better, right? Not everyone, but like, if you look at it from a country perspective, there's, you know, running water and roads and electricity and sewerage and, you know, the basic necessities that we take for granted, people in other countries don't have. Now, yes, there are, there is systemic racism in some places in the United States against blacks but they're not being herded and put into camps they're not being killed based on based on their their religion you know if you're one version of muslim in in a country compared to an compared to another there's a legitimate chance that you'll be killed right there's you know if you're a christian in some countries or if you're a hindu in another country if you're muslim in another country and you're the minority Sheik, whatever whatever religion you are, there's a real risk that you're going to be victimized and abused. Now, that might be happening in America, but the degree that it's happening is less. Does that make it? Does that make it like, uh, you know, is that does that sort of discount all of this, all of the problems that we see happening? Of course not, because. You know, idealistically, it would be ideal if we could have a society where everyone's treated equally, regardless. You know, a true meritocracy. But even that, even a true meritocracy gets flawed because then people that are, you know, there has to there has to be a social catch-all because some people simply can't do as much or work as hard or have the innate cognitive or physical capacities or, you know, there's a whole variety of different factors that come into this. I suppose what I'm trying to drive at is, is that there will always be conflict where idealism meets reality. And it's always going to be a process towards the ideal. You know, there's, people are saying, it's like, oh, look, America hasn't changed from the 1960s to now because there was race riots then and there's race riots now. Once again, look at, look back at history, look at firsthand accounts of what it was actually like back then and compare it to now, and you'll see that there's a stark difference. There's been improvements. Just like there was improvements from 1960 to when slavery existed, right? There, we are making progress. It's just that where we are now isn't, is, you know, is not an ideal place. And that's what we're pushing at. So the other thing I would, I would like to suggest, or I'd like to see, would be a consideration that, you know, potentially... We, we want change. We want it to be a, 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 a gradual push as opposed to a tear down and, and switch up approach because if we could make these changes and make that progress and start working towards it, we're heading in the right direction. But in the same way that it's very hard for an individual to escape their past, their heritage, the, 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 the cycles of whatever you've dealt with from your parents, it's very hard for a society to do that. It's ingrained 
in us and it's been ingrained and if you but but it can be changed and it can be tweaked and you know change does happen but it doesn't happen overnight because people take people take time to to get over prejudices and you know like for lack of a better expression generations need to die off for the for the new generations to come in if you look at the people that are protesting they're predominantly young right let's say you know let's say they're 20 to 30 when those people are the ruling class as in they're 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 older right and the people that are that sort of 60 70 80 have passed on there's going to be a cultural shift right a a a way that we view the world that will be different you know, and you, you keep going back over the generations. If you if you lived through World War II, you're going to have a very different view of the world compared to if you were born in 2005, right? The way you view the world will be completely different because you grew up in a different world. So to expect people that grew up in one world to, 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 to twist and change is idealistic. It just doesn't seem... It doesn't seem realistic. I would want it to happen. I would suggest, and you know, if I come across someone that's discriminatory in some capacity, and I can be like, "Hey, uh, this doesn't seem right," because, and we can have this discussion. Maybe I can help that person. But ultimately, it's quite hard to to change people. And I know I'm sounding a bit like you know Debbie Downer here, but but it's 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 not an easier process to instill and to get people to change. The thing is, though, is that it does need to happen, clearly. Clearly, we need to address this. I would like to see, personally, from a, for a, from a more specific perspective, I would like to see more training for police. I would like to see more... I would like to see police train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I know that sounds a bit... <laughs> a little bit interesting, but hear me out on this. I train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu myself, and it's basically a martial art where you... What you do is you get good at holding people down safely, and you get good at escaping people's holding you down. And the idea is is that you know each time you train, you learn specific drills and skills and yada yada. And at the end of each class, you free roll, and you get to practice your techniques on resisting opponents. And very quickly, you start to learn what works and what doesn't. And if the person wants it to stop, they tap, and that means you just let go. And what I've discovered is over the years, I've been doing it for maybe five or six plus years now, and against an untrained opponent, against someone that doesn't have jiu-jitsu, I have 100% confidence in my ability. They they can't hold me down, and I could hold them down indefinitely and safely. Now, jiu-jitsu, it takes it to the next level where you go for submissions and locks, and it becomes this sort of fight game. But from a from a practical perspective... Someone can come into the gym that has 20 kilos of muscle on me, and I know that I'm fine. I've seen 60 kilo girls be able to submit, hold down, and dominate men that have got, that are like 80 kilos, untrained. Put simply, it works. So whenever I see a group of policemen holding down somebody, I'm like, your technique is shit, and you're going to cause this person unnecessary duress. If, if one of the people, if one of the cops knew some good legitimate technique here, it would save them a lot of effort and it would be far safer because they would know what they're doing. They'd be able to control the situation safely. Now, 
it should be obvious and like this is why I'm like I can't fathom what is going through some of the you know when you look at the footage you know a knee on the back of the neck prolonged that's a that's just a recipe to kill someone you know you're constricting the breath you're blocking off the airways you're risking the spine I would never do that to someone unless I wanted to kill them now I don't know the intent of the cop but I know that if he had have had some training, he would know that that is certainly not right. Now, his intent, I have no idea. He could have intended to hold this person down indefinitely. He could have intended to kill the person. He could have been oblivious. He could be getting, he could have got some joy from it. He might not have got joy from doing it. I don't know. I have no idea. Looking at it from a purely martial artist perspective, a purely technical perspective, the technique shit, and it was dangerous, clearly. Same thing if you're like sitting on someone's chest. There's been asphyxiation via pressure. If you sit on someone's chest and just sit there and hold the person down, you know, two, three, four people on top, there's a real risk of killing that person because they can't breathe. Whereas if you have some technique and you've been trained, you can actually hold people down in a safe fashion. If you've got two or three people that are trained, you can work together in a team and very, very easily control the situation. I would like to see some training down that path because the reality is, is if you step back and look at what a cop deals with on a day-to-day basis, their job is literally to come to an emergency situation, right? In, you know, situations are different, right? But a cop will turn up to a situation where something has gone wrong. That's why they're there most of the time. So they have to deal with people when those people are in a state of duress, when they're freaking out. And just by talking to a cop, people freak out. They get upset. They get nervous. But to a cop, that's their day-to-day. So there's this different mentality that's happening. And in America, a lot of people have a gun. So a cop's going to this unknown situation concerned that they might get shot, right, by this nervous person. And the cops are untrained. And do you see how this is a recipe for disaster here? I can't help but feel with more training, more funding in the right ways, there would be a way to ensure that that the police actions are far safer. And once again, with more funding, perhaps we could, perhaps they could, you know, pay cops better money and therefore attract a broader population of people to be cops because there's a better, better pay incentive and therefore sift out you know, have have better uh, screening procedures to sift out people that are more likely to kneel on someone's neck for eight minutes, right? Maybe there needs to be more training on, you know, because there's, there's a bunch of videos of people being racially profiled. How can you look at someone and go, okay, why is this person a legitimate threat that, you know, based upon suspicion? What, what, what suspicion do I have to search this person's person or car or house or whatever? There has to be a better way than just looking at that at the person's race or the color of their skin. Maybe they need more training, more training here. In terms of in terms of shootings, if your only response to someone is to shoot because you don't have the training, you don't have the tools, you don't have the backup. If you're if you're a cop in America and you pull someone over and you're on your own and that person looks like a threat, you're going straight to your gun because you want to stay safe for yourself. Could could more funding, more training, 
more cops be a better solution? The whole point of this whole podcast is to sort of, it's not necessarily to provide any solutions because, you know, who am I? I'm, I'm, I'm no one, right? But it's to look at the nuance of the situation because there's so many different ways that we can view this. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to to have a cross-section of friends that are, some are very right-wing, some are very left-wing, some are very passionate, some are very unpassionate, right? And to see the response to this has been interesting. A lot of people have come on the supporting side of the protesters. A lot of people, you know, I know are Asian, so they've experienced their own race, racism in Australia, and they're like, this isn't good, and they can empathize quite significantly. I've got a bunch of, I've got friends and family who are policemen and they're looking at it from another perspective. I've got friends that are quite right-wing and that are pointing out the the stats and saying, hey, this is, you know, a, a psychological problem or a cop. Like, you know, they, they, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a sort of a, a cross-section. The interesting thing comes when I then click onto their profile and I look what they're sharing and I look at the sources that they're sharing from. Typically, the people on the right are sharing from a certain group of sources, and the people on the left are sharing from another certain group of sources. Once again, that concerns me. It concerns me on multiple levels. It concerns me because there's that echo chamber effect that I've talked about in previous podcasts, that we're sort of continually indoctrinating ourselves to believe the same thing. And it also concerns me that those news outlets are pushing down these same narratives, right? In the sense that if you always listen to CNN or you always listen to Fox or you always listen to, you know, a certain newspaper or a certain um, person, right? If you're only getting your information from that one source, how do you know the truth? How can you possibly hope to know the truth? Not just on this issue, but on every issue. How, how, can, we, how can we possibly hope to have an informed opinion? And my other other concern with this is, is that I fear that people don't push for that that informed opinion. I feel that people jump on bandwagons and jump on trends. I don't know what's going to happen with this whole protesty situation. I have no idea. It could keep going for ages or it could fizzle out. But I fear that there's a, there's a significant percentage of people that are jumping on it because it's the bandwagon thing to do now. Not because they didn't not because they cared right? Not because they actually legitimately care about the issue, but because that's the sort of social justice signaling thing. It's like, oh, this is the thing we care about now. Do you really care about it? Or do you just want to show that you care about it? I don't know. I feel like this podcast, I'm going to offend absolutely everybody listening. Um, But I'm not too concerned about that because my my whole point of this is to, to start a legitimate discussion here. Look, and consider a deeper truth here. If you want to make change, how can you push for legitimate change? Not just not just screaming and yelling and, and, and causing a fuss. That's great. It might be necessary because it's like, well, hey, let's 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 burn it all down and they'll they'll listen to, you know, we're sort of this is on that money thing. It's like, well, if we burn down apartment stores and, you know, destroy people's property, maybe they'll listen then. But the, the problem is is the big businesses won't. They've got insurance. that's covered. They don't they don't care. The it's the small businesses that are getting looted and destroyed that are gonna be crippled from this, right? If 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 people are looting and they're destroying small businesses or they're robbing from small businesses. 
are you are you attacking the right people? If if once again if you're a protester and you go and insult and attack and hurt a police person, are you helping or are are you hindering? Is attacking someone of the other group the best thing? Because let's say you're a black person and your group of black people beat up a police person. What's what's that going to cause? Probably a lot of retribution, and vice versa. If a bunch of police people overdo, overstep their marks now, and you know there's a bunch of pictures of kids being tear gassed and a whole variety of like you know not good things happening. If they overstep their bounds and go too far, that's going to cause retribution. Is that what you want to have happen? Do you do you want to make your job harder? Like, let's step back and 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 look at what we actually want to have happen. And if that whole goal is to get to a place of equality, how can we actually make that change? What can we actually do to to to, to what can we actually do to 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 make that change? That's the conversation I want to have. That's what I want to know about is, is how can we actually do something to impact stuff rather than just yelling, rather than just getting angry at either side, right? Is is there is there a way that we can bring each bring the bring all of the groups together and go, hey, how can we do this? You know, because you know, it's it's not good that people are dying unnecessarily in police custody. It's not good that people are so so upset that they're protesting. It you know, this isn't a good situation. Can we can we address it? I don't know. I don't have any answers and. Like I said, I'm sure I've offended a lot of you, and if I have, and there's something specific that you would like me to to dive into, please connect with me um, on social media potentially at Zach P Phillips wherever wherever you're on social. That's my tag, um, or on my website zachary-phillips.com. And if you like this podcast, give us give us a review. <laughs> um, maybe this isn't the best episode to ask for that review, but um, it just is a good way to, to to spread the word and to hopefully get a bit of more of a nuanced discussion. Most of the time I talk about um, mental health and, you know, self-improvement and that sort of stuff, but I occasionally talk about politics and all that sort of stuff because, you know, what's going on is 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 um, is a measure of that. You know, if, if people are protesting, there's there's a level of something that's not right that needs to be fixed. So it's all it's all sort of connected and all sort of related. So chuck that review up. Let me know what you think. Connect with me. I can go deeper onto this. I can respond if I get a bunch of questions. I'm happy to do a follow up on this and be like, you know, hey, this person said this. This is what I really mean, or this is what I'm really thinking about, or if I've said something that think is factually incorrect, let me know. Anyway, stay safe, guys. Cheers. Mm-hmm.